Hello, thanks for joining us for Beyond the Stage. I'm Ruth Egerman. I'm the Director of Marketing at Livermore Valley Arts, and I'm here with our host and Executive Director, Chris Carter. Say hey, hi, Ruth. Hey. How are you? Good, good. How was, uh, it's a Monday here. How was your weekend? It was really good. I, I went to visit my son uh, at uh, for a parent weekend at college, so um, he goes to school in Flagstaff for, at Northern Arizona University, and uh, uh, we went to the football game for homecoming. They lost by a lot, um, but uh, I went to a, he's belongs to a fraternity, so I went to a frat party. I haven't been to a frat party in like 30 years, I think. Um, you in a fraternity? I was not in a fraternity. Um, I The school I went to did not have fraternities, but we were uh, pretty close to uh to Berkeley, to Cal right. Berkeley. And I, I had friends out there that were belonged to fraternities. Yeah. Well, that sounds like fun and you're back. Over the weekend, I watched a docu-series. It was just a two-episode docu-series on Laurel Canyon. Uh, I saw it on Prime and I was like, oh, I should watch this. We've been I talking didn't... a lot about that lately. Yeah, we have been talking a lot about it. And I didn't really know the history and the roots of it or any, just that it existed and it was a hotbed for, for musicians uh, during the, what was it like mid sixties to about the mid seventies, I think. Yeah. What it was. Yeah. Um, and it was absolutely fa fascinating, just incredibly fascinating. It was cool to hear one of the, one of the founding groups of it was um, the birds. They sort of kind of did that. Yeah. And one of the founders of the birds was Roger McGuinn. Roger McGuinn. He's he, coming. We'll be here in April. And I think we should get him on our podcast list. <laughs> after, after seeing this documentary, I was just absolutely fascinated. It was so good. And uh, it was just called Laurel Canyon. And then even part of the documentary was the um, concert in 19, I think it was 1969 that happened here in Livermore up at the Altamont um past road raceway i think is what it yeah was. ultimate raceway with yeah, the rolling stones a, yeah with the rolling stones yeah. and and there were a number of folks from um from the laurel canyon group that performed there uh and so that was fascinating and you know through this whole process i'm like learning so much about music and all this music that i listened to i could see all of the album covers in my parents music or in I don't know if it was my parents, but our record collection growing up and just, it was just so cool. So cool. And it was, you know, I grew up in a flyover state, so we didn't, we didn't connect anything with location or geography or anything mm -hmm. like that. So it was really cool. And then now I live basically across the street from where the Rolling Stones played, you know, if you were to say that, yeah, <laughs> not, not directly across the street, but I look out into the hills from my bedroom window and can see where they they were playing and it's so cool so cool there's, so. yeah and there's a lot of people around here that uh were around then and yeah so, that kind of remember that that time and i know it wasn't it was tumultuous it was a tumultuous time it was that concert specifically the one at altamont raceway was did not end well but um and i don't want to make light of that but it it's just you know, just the history, it just all comes through and it, it's all told through the the music and through the lyrics and 
it's very interesting. Who were some of the other uh, Laurel Canyon uh, well, positions? Um, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young mm -hmm. all came out of that. Um, although I think it started, it was really Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and sometimes Young um, is, how, is how it was presented in Laurel Canyon. And I, I think that's exactly how it, it existed. Um, you had Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown, yeah. Linda Ronstadt. Um, oh, my God. Who am I? There was a band called Love, which I'm not familiar with, that was really start at the start of um, Laurel Canyon. Um, the Eagles came out. I was going to say, wasn't the Eagles there? Yeah. Um, there were so, so many. It was hard to like, it was hard to process how. Well, how they would all just like hang out all the time with each other, right? And yeah, play with each well, other and write together and all sorts of things. And then on top of that, at the same time, that's all going on in Laurel Canyon. You also have either neighboring Laurel Canyon or in Laurel Canyon, the whole um, Charles Manson stuff going on too and so i mean that was all brought into this documentary but it's just a really kind of fascinating time fascinating um and it, it's it's interesting because i think about music today and i think about some of the things that we've been through and maybe this was because it was like the birth of rock and roll to some degree it was the movement away not away away but the movement from folk music traditional folk music to rock and roll, which um, and and mixed in all of that is it, are these protest songs that don't really come off as protest songs, but they are, and uh, really just an interesting time. And I just don't I don't get that from music these days. Mm -hmm. Like you know, and I don't, I don't you know, and this is something that I've dealt with being just not old enough to sort of be in that moment just slightly not old enough <laughs> yeah and I, I i agree i don't know if there are music communities quite like that nowadays yeah. um i mean there's a lot of artists that work together but it's right. uh it's much more um spread out yeah and it's they're all professionals and it's more business-like and it's yeah. not quite the same well, and that was one of the things they talked about in this documentary was, you know, a lot of the musicians talked about as they, oh, Joni Mitchell was another one. Who came yeah. That. Um, was it James Taylor too? Was James Taylor there? Maybe. I don't, re I don't recall. Okay. I don't recall. And so, um, but it was one of those, um, one of the interesting things they talked about is as they got more and more successful, they stopped working together every day and stopped living together and stopped seeing each other, which had an impact on the creative process. So we've talked about so much on this podcast. Yeah. So interesting. Anyway, okay. today, <laughs> so that may be a podcast topic for another. Okay, time. we'll work on that. Yeah. <laughs> today we are talking to Lindsay Deutsch that many people may remember from who played the violin at Violins of Hope. Yes. With her group, Take Three, where Bach meets rock. And it just sounds fascinating. And not only that, we found out, or I found out today that she was also, you know, Olympic quality racquetball player. So, uh, an athlete, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that was really interesting. She's very enthusiastic and very charming and just exudes energy both on stage and off. I really enjoyed the interview with her and what she had to say. 
Yeah, me too. Yeah, very talented. And uh, I think it's going to be a wonderful show. So uh, yeah. looking forward to it. I hope everybody enjoys this interview. Yeah, thank you. Please stay and listen and enjoy the interview. Hey, there she is. is. I feel like in conservatory, we should uh, all have uh, the ability to learn how to use computers because look how hard this is. And all through that pandemic too, it just never works on the right device at any time, but it's so good to see you. Good to see you too. Lindsay, I, I'm the same way. I, I was visiting my son this weekend at college and I was trying to use Venmo and I had to give him my phone. I'm like, can you do this for me? Oh, no. <laughs> God, we're getting so old. Well, and we've met before, Lindsay, because you've we been have. at the Bankhead, and uh, you were actually here earlier this year with uh, Violins of Hope, uh-huh. right? Um, that was probably the highlight of the year for, for most of us, so I want to say thank you for being a part of that. That was really amazing. Yeah. How, how, did, you, how, you, how did you get connected with Violins of Hope? Well, that was also uh, the highlight of my year. I wanted to say that. Um, so I moved to Los Angeles from Houston oh gosh, I'm going to age myself here. Um, 20 years ago, I moved there uh, because I wanted to study with a particular teacher. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. Uh, But one of the first people that I met was Noreen Green, who spearheaded this entire Violins of Hope project. And she connected it to me during the pandemic. And it was one of those concerts that was scheduled and then you know, it took years to actually come to fruition because everything was moved by a year or two. And so I did my first Highlands of Hope with her in Los Angeles. And then Lara Weber, who I've known since I was a child, playing. No with. way. Yes. Wow. Uh, I played her with the Disney Young Musician Symphony Orchestra in Los Angeles as a 10 year old. Wow. 10 year old. And I, I, you know, met her all those years ago and then fast forward 20 years and she asked me to be a part of this at the Bankhead with Violins of Hope. And um, it's such an important project. I mean, the latest surviving Holocaust um, survivors are few. And so it's really important to keep that story alive. And I think that the worst thing we can do is to forget and to to stop telling the stories. And so for me as an artist and entertainer, my voice is my violin. My voice is music. So to be able to express these stories through music and through the only thing I know, which is playing the violin, uh, is really powerful. Uh, so thanks for giving me that opportunity to be there and to meet you guys. Well, I just have to say... Um that it was just a magical moment for me. I'm, um, you know, raised Jewish and raised um, in a temple with a Holocaust survivor. So have heard, um, our rabbi was a Holocaust survivor. And so I'd heard, you know, so many stories growing up and they're painful and they're difficult to hear. And yes, we need to hear them. And I was I was trepidatious about going to this concert. I really was because I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to be in this space. And I have to tell you that the minute the music started playing and the stories were being told and the energy that you brought to the stage and the energy connection between you and Laura, 
it was amazing. And it was like, oh, this is actually about hope and resilience. And it was extraordinary. And I came out and I think everybody I've talked to about that concert and then said, oh yeah, she's coming back for take three. I've been, everybody's been like, oh my God, she was amazing. You absolutely just brought so much joy and and heart and soul to the stage that, um, man, I'm, I was like, we have to bring her back. We have to bring her back, figure out a way to bring her back because she was amazing. <laughs> thank you for that. And, uh, yeah. and thanks so, for bringing me back. And actually, thank you, you about- for that because it really was meaningful to me. And and I know it wasn't meaningful for so much of our community. So thank you. When you talk about headspace, you know, that's something that's really interesting to think about with take three. It's just so joyful. Uh, so it's not hard to get into that headspace because I love playing with my friends and I love, you know, creating covers of, of new songs and making them fresh and putting a classical spin on them. But the headspace needed for like the violins of hope, you know, it, it does take a different prep, preparation, uh, almost like an actor, I would imagine, would have to get into that space to be able to convey that moment. And no matter what your day was, you know, from morning until 6 p.m. before the show, um, all of that needs to melt away and you have to kind of forward think to what you're about to do. And I do find that kind of to be difficult, you know, for those particular concerts because I don't do them often. Um, but I'm glad that I was able to do my job, which was to tell that story in a way that made an impact on others. So. What, what was that like for you? I mean, to hold that violin and I mean, does it feel different than other violins when you're playing it or? Oh, for sure. And and part of the storytelling too is being able to understand everywhere this violin went and all the hardship that it saw, all the happy moments that it saw before it ended up uh, in the camps. Um, so trying to get into the space of the people that were playing on it, it's very powerful. It's very emotional. And it's difficult to be in that space and play the violin sometimes at the same time. And you almost get into this zone, which is very powerful, where you're not part of the mix. So mm-hmm. you're, you're playing a violin, and you're telling the story, and then if you almost are able to remove yourself from this moment. And it's very odd, because I don't do that when I play in Take Three and when I do other shows. But for the Violins of Hope, uh, that's what happens. And I think it's because of what you're saying, because I'm holding this instrument that has seen it all. And I'm trying to imagine where it's been, uh, you know, having lived a very privileged life, it's hard to get into that space of everything that that has gone on. But I know that that violin saw it all. And so I have to take my experiences and lend it to this moment. Um, so I'm glad that I had the opportunity to do that with you. Yeah, thank you for that. And it, it, Ruth's right. After the show, a, a lot of performance, excuse me, a, a lot of people approached and were, you know, commenting on how impressed they were with with you and, and your performance. And um, they said, can we get her back? <laughs> I said, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> uh, she has this great trio that I think you'll love. And so um, how how is take three? Like, what should we expect with take three? And tell us about some of the other artists and uh, what the show is going to be like. So Take Three is my baby. I started it um, at an interesting time in my life. After graduating uh, the Colburn School, 
I think a lot of musicians who graduate conservatory are under the impression that something magical is going to happen and people are just going to be lining up and ready to hear us play. And after I graduated conservatory, my dream was to be a solo classical violinist who, you know, the one that comes out uh, and plays with the orchestra and does half an hour and then goes away. And I did some of that, but not enough to make a living. And so right after graduating college, I was teaching, I was doing the occasional performance, but these performances are so difficult. I mean, to play the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto in front of an orchestra takes years, decades, hundreds, thousands of hours of practice. And I would get done with the performance and, and the audience would come up to me and they'd say, you know, that was so wonderful. And they'd say, you know, I feel like you're almost as good as, as Lindsey Sterling. And uh, so that's when I started to realize maybe I could lend my talents to something else. And I got a call from Yanni, who is a very famous pianist, composer, and I had never done any crossover whatsoever before that moment. And he said, would you come in three weeks to Saudi Arabia and be a part of our show and that'll be your audition. And I didn't know if I would be able to switch from classical to that genre. And I tried my best and I showed up and it was a really beautiful relationship from the beginning. And I got on the plane after that moment, I got the job and I wrote down on a tiny airplane napkin, uh, my idea for take three. And that was six years ago. We've been touring for five years now. Wow. Well, I was going to ask you about Yanni because you, you, since you brought that up, um, I, he plays in some front of some pretty big crowds. Uh, what, what's the biggest audience you've ever played in front of now? Probably uh, that very first one. And it's actually a funny story because we wear in-ear monitors and it basically blocks out all external sound, or at least it's supposed to. However, that night there was a crowd of 30,000 people and I stood up to do my first solo in the show and I couldn't hear the click. I couldn't hear the track. I couldn't hear anything. And I had this out of body experience of this is my moment and this is my audition and I'm failing and I don't know where, where I am, what to do, what's happening. And I looked over at Yanni and he was just smiling and so happy. And I guess my fingers were playing the right notes somehow. And it was literally the sound of the crowd drowning out everything else in my in-ear monitor. The other professionals near me probably knew they had to crank it up higher in a space like that, but I didn't know that. And the crowd is so different for something like Yanni versus something like playing a concerto. Yeah. And I really want to feel that energy from the audience as a performer to get, you know, the polite applause. That's not what I live for. That's not what I want. I want energy from them. That's feeding me. That's making me love this moment. That's actually changing my interpretation of this song right now. And so without that, uh, it, you know, music just didn't have the same meaning for me as it does now with Take Three. Huh. Well, and you had this, when we saw you, you had this great stage presence. Um, did you kind of learn that while as you performed with Yanni or is that just something you've always uh had inside of you because you really commanded the stage really well yeah. um when you were here well as a child I always was the one that wanted to move and express physically 
And uh, I'll never forget, I was a teenager and I was playing in a master class with my teacher in front of an audience. And, um, and I love him, Robert Lipson at Colburn. Uh, but on this particular day, he built a gate uh, of chairs. He put chairs in a circle around me because I was moving too much. And I think <laughs> that the classical genre, it's the way I grew up. I have such a respect and love for it. However, you know, you've got to follow the rules. You've got to play every note exactly as it's written. And the goal for classical music is to figure out how to exactly interpret what that composer wanted. And I feel like for me as an entertainer and as an artist, I wanted to express what I was feeling. Uh, you know, I wanted to tell a story that I had inside of me. And so now with take three, nobody can tell me I can't move a certain way. Nobody can tell me that I have to follow any kind of rules. I can make crazy sounds. I can play way too scratchy and way too loud and just do things that I'm feeling in the moment. And there are no rules. So it's such a different way of expressing and one that I'm so much more comfortable with. And I'm just so grateful that I even knew that that was an option for me because after from five years old till my you know mid twenties, I never ever considered playing a pop song on the violin. It never entered my mind of something that I would consider doing. And then after my experience with Yanni, I realized that if I really wanted to reach people in that kind of visceral way, it was probably not going to be through playing the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, at least for me. Yeah, I have a feeling yeah. like if you played the electric guitar, you'd be the one like doing the slide across the stage on their on your knees, right? Is that you? Yes. <laughs> Can I do that at the bankhead with the violin, please? <laughs> sure. Okay. Yes. Yes, Let's please. See it. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Um, and the, it, on your website, it says you you've toured with Yanni on. Is it really all seven continents or? Nearly all? We've been like everywhere. And um, with Yanni, he, he went to uh, just all kinds of places. My very first show with him was in Saudi Arabia. And so it was such a different experience. And I hadn't done much traveling outside of the U.S. So I learned so much about the world and about cultures through that experience. And now Take Three does a lot of traveling abroad. Yeah, we play one show uh, on cruise ships with the guest entertainers on cruise ships and how that works is they helicopter us into the ship and we play one show and then they helicopter us out and so uh, we started doing that during the pandemic and that has brought us all over the world and it's worked out really well scheduling wise because we schedule our land shows about a year or two in advance and then with any extra empty space that we want to fill in, we, you know, go on these ships and perform. Just fly in. Okay. Yeah. What kind of music? Um, well, I know you're playing sort of the, the title of the, of the show is Bach to Rock, right? So what kind of music can our audiences expect to hear or who can they expect to hear songs that they might recognize by name <laughs> that might have a different spin on the stage? So. So we play a little of everything, and that's kind of what we're known for. So we play oldies like Billy Joel. We play country music like Sweet Home Alabama. We play a lot of TV and movie themes like Game of Thrones, Pirates of the Caribbean. 
uh, Pulp Fiction, Miserloo. Uh, we try to reach all the genres. We might even put in some uh, Bieber, Despacito. And the take three twist is that when we play those pieces, we often mash it up with a famous classical tune. So one of my personal favorites is an arrangement of Bach mashed with Amazing Grace. Uh, another favorite of mine is an uh, Imagine Dragon song named Natural. And we combine that with Carmen, the opera. And so it's kind of our nod to our history because we all studied at either Juilliard or the Colburn School. And we, we all spent our entire childhoods and our early adult lives really, you know, with our blood, sweat and tears learning all of those classics. And so I think to give it up completely wouldn't be us. It just wouldn't be our personality. So to be able to combine it in a way that everyone can appreciate and use the motifs that everyone knows, these famous classical pieces, we even sneak in Moonlight Sonata into um, Orange Blossom Special with <laughs> Flight of the Bumblebee. So we do some kind of fun things with our with our music. Well, it's interesting because I know for me, like I I I I do not listen to a lot of symphonic music, um, uh -huh. and I think it's it's really great how you're kind of allowing this or kind of introducing this whole audience uh to, to to symphonic and classical music but in, in a way that they're comfortable with because i think that the hard part for a lot of people is they they might want to come to see a show that's more symphonic um however they don't know how to listen to it or mm -hmm. um they haven't really been trained on on what they're listening for mm -hmm. and things like that i mean i mean do you have any advice for 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 us for the people like me who um would like to get more into it and learn more and listen more and how to listen to classical music? I think take three is a good starter. And I've spent so much time thinking about this very subject because when I started take three, I started it as someone who was starting a business of any sort. And it's like, what do people want? How can I create something musical that the majority of people, nine out of 10 people are gonna not like, but love with a passion and I thought about how to create that so I had to get into the mindset of your just standard audience goer I mean yeah. what do they want to see first of all they want to see something visually exciting right so a cello literally starts our concert running onto the stage playing cello and stands up for the entire first number so that's already giving the audience something new because I was so afraid when I created take three what if people are afraid to come to our show because they're worried that it's going to be too classical and it's going to be boring and it's going to be elevator music. And so it's been really hard to figure out how to market take three so that, yes, you're going to hear symphonic sounds. It's going to sound the same as it would if we were playing a classical piece. Our violins, my violin was built 200 years ago, you know, so it sounds the same as if I played Tchaikovsky Concerto. We're just playing different music and we're using some different sound techniques to make it come across. Um, but my worst fear is to alienate any audience member, you know? So if they love classical music, I hope they'll love take three. If they're not sure about classical music, I hope that they'll love the little tidbits that we put in there. And a benefit of that, what if they 
see our show and loved the tiny little phrases of classical music and went home and researched other groups that are more classical. That would be an amazing compliment uh, to me. So uh, I don't know if that happens or not, honestly, I have no idea, but I hope it does. Well, we can survey our audience afterwards if you want us to send them an email. <laughs> I actually would love that. <laughs> I think I think um, just on the same on the same side, and you, you touched upon this in your answer, was that there are people that have a fear of classical music, and it's more of a fear of not understanding what they're hearing. For me, it's like do you like what you're hearing? <laughs> you know, like, does it make you feel good? I'm, I'm not a musician. I'm not, none of that. I don't know how to read music or anything, but I do enjoy listening and I enjoy listening to all types of music, including classical. And I've had the great fortune of working for some great symphony orchestras out there um, as well. So that has helped educate me a little bit, but even so I still go to a show and or a performance of a of an orchestra and i'm not sure i can't tell you if you missed a note i don't care if you missed a note or whatever bait or anything it doesn't make any difference if i enjoyed it and i think that's one of the lessons of the performing arts especially the high arts like when you have you know dance ballet or classical music or opera or anything like that it is just a learning experience and it's a learning experience that's unique to yourself in some way do you like it and i think on the reverse you're also going to introduce and you mentioned this some people who are real classical music nuts and wouldn't give the time of day to billy joel and maybe they'll get something out of it <laughs> <laughs> well so you know you for that there's something that I've been thinking a lot about uh, just during the last five years of Take Three. You know, the way, I don't know if people understand this, but the way that we are trained is it it can't help but to make you very stoic. So I don't know if you've seen symphony orchestras and you look around and everybody kind of has that kind of blink face. And I know that they're feeling the music, but I understand what that blink face is because I lived it for 20 years. What it is, is every note that we play being uh, under a magnifying glass and every note we play having to be just this way. And it kind of takes a little bit of the soul away. And um, for me, you know, my number one goal, my only goal for the show is I want to move people. They should feel unbelievable joy when it's appropriate, unbelievable sadness when it's appropriate. I want to express that. And the way that I was trained um, really made it hard to do that. So I had to take time to get out of this, you know, perfection zone where all I cared about was playing every note perfectly in the way that it was meant to be played. And now be able to just let go because you don't know or care about the note that I missed, you know, three phrases ago, but you do care that I'm in the moment 100% and I feel everything that I'm doing and you have to see and hear that. Uh, so so I, well, I think that's why we were so, why so much of the audience was so struck by your performance at Violence of Hope. And it, it brought that moment to us in a way that many of us who have seen classical music before and seen live orchestras perform that we got to witness 
you and and Laura is sort of the same way. She's very much into that. You know, like you, it's an expression, and it express you express yourself both physically and mentally, and through the instrument as well. And we got to see that, and that was transformative for some of us. And so, you know, that it was. You bring that, and I think that's well, you're obviously doing a good job it. with Ruth. Yeah, <laughs> I'm such a fan. <laughs> it's, it's coming across. I, I was going to ask you, Lindsay, like if when you go to see live classical music then or what's that experience like for you are you are you enjoying it are you listening to every note or are you are you trying to feel it or what how, how do you listen you know unfortunately when I hear certain songs um certain pieces of music I have a certain anxiety associated with that because for me to walk out on stage in front of a symphony orchestra became a really stressful experience and how on earth are you going to be able to feel the emotions of the song if your number one overriding feeling is anxiety? So when I go and I see a violin soloist playing with orchestra, unfortunately, I'm not enjoying it as much as probably my neighbor, because at the first opening you know, notes of the orchestral tootie, uh, my whole body is like not happy. It's just anxious, and I just am taken back to this being my career and this being my life. And it felt like so important. This felt like everything was resting on this moment uh, in a way like the Olympic people probably feel, but of course it's not nearly as important as that. Uh, but to your body and the way you're feeling, you know, you can trick yourself into thinking that it is. So that being said, no, I don't enjoy hearing violin soloists, but I enjoy almost every other kind of classical music. I enjoy symphonies. I enjoy everything else because I don't have that association yeah. of negativity and stress. So I still love classical music. And, you know, we do a lot of outreach and we play for you know thousands of kids every year. And my hope is that we make sure that there is an audience for true classical music because if we don't present it to young kids at an early age in a way that's palatable to them, we may really have a problem. And yeah. our local orchestras are really struggling and trying to figure out how to gain a broader audience because generally the audiences that hear symphony orchestras are, are aging. And so what happens if we don't have a new crop that's brought in? So we play for a lot of kids and I hope that when we combine Bach and tell them about our history and talk a little bit about the historical significance of this music combining it with Justin Bieber maybe we're we're presenting it in a way that's going to excite them and maybe when they're adults they will be interested in classical crossover classical music and be patrons of the arts. I sure hope so. Uh, you, you know, I, I sometimes feel the same way as a presenter when I'm, I'm watching music or, or performance in, in our space. Uh, I'm, I'm so concerned with, is it sounding good? Are the levels right? Is the audience, you know, getting what they need? You know, and it's just, it's hard for me to enjoy it too. <laughs> so I have to really um, kind of let go of all of that in order to enjoy things sometimes. But uh, luckily, uh, we it's such a good space for the things that we do. Oftentimes it just naturally, you know, I, I, I can, I can eventually enjoy it after I kind of get over everything else. Um, you mentioned the Olympics earlier. Now you, you have an Olympic uh, history too. Is that right? Did I read I that do. correct? 
So I, as a child and teenager, played racquetball, and I was super into it, so much so that I was actually homeschooled for 7th through 12th grade because I was practicing the violin many hours a day and practicing racquetball many hours a day. And I was a part of the junior Olympic team, and we would go train in Colorado Springs at the training center. And I would see all these, you know, famous Olympian gymnasts that I just thought, wow, this is incredible. And they would be there, you know, having lunch. And uh, so I would go there for a couple of weeks every summer and and train. And uh, unfortunately, I had a knee injury when I was 18. And I just gave it up completely because I think to be a musician and to be in this field, it requires everything. So to have part of your energy going to you know, trying to be a great racquetball player, it just didn't make sense anymore, Mm -hmm. especially going into college uh, at at Colburn. Um, It just wasn't meant to be a long-term part of my life. What, what, uh, between racquetball and violin, as you were learning growing up, uh, was there one that was more challenging than the other? Oh yeah. I mean, I think violin is is more challenging because you have to sit in a room by yourself and practice everything and and all the little details. Whereas with racquetball, you could do doubles, you could do singles, you had someone else, some social interaction during that time, and you're getting your energy out and running around and it's a game after all. So Um, definitely the violin was more challenging, but I think that they helped each other because for big racquetball tournaments, you know, you'd have these big moments, like I'm going to make or break it in this moment with an audience. And so I think learning to deal with the nerves and to really be your best in those moments where it really counts uh, and how to learn to forget about something that went wrong in the previous point and move on. I think those were really important skills that helped violin and vice versa performing a concert where it's like, this is the moment where it matters and staying mm-hmm. calm and really feeling like you're in control of that moment um, was really helpful for both. So I'm really happy to have that experience. Thank you for sharing that. That's very cool. I, as I was reading about you and I'm like, wow, that is so neat. Um, you have lots of talents, hidden talents, apparently. Um, I also read uh, a, another story. I want to make sure this is true that you had a violin that was stolen or stolen out of a car, and it was kind of a, made some big news because it was a pretty special violin. Is that right? Well, it's a sore topic for me because you know you're not supposed to ever leave an instrument oh. in a car. So that violin was on loan to me. Uh, when I turned 16 and my family had moved from Houston, Texas to California so that I could not only study at the Colburn School, but also play on this very special instrument, which was a Sanctu Seraphin instrument built in the 1700s in Italy. And this is like the gold standard for violins. Uh, I also had a very special French tort bow in that case that was that I left in this car. So all in all, it was over $1 million worth of equipment. And I was you know, a kid at the time. And I left it in the car to do, you know, for five minutes and came back and the window uh, was smashed in. But we realized early on that they didn't want the violin because my backpack was also taken. 
And if you knew what was in this violin case, you wouldn't be worrying about this kid's backpack as well. So yes, we put it out on news. Uh, we put out that we we're offering a $10,000 reward and no questions asked. And someone brought it in three or four days later and said they found it near a dumpster. Who knows what's true, but uh, we paid the $10,000. And luckily and amazingly, the donor of this violin who lent it to me for all these years, um, <laughs> he let me continue to use it. Because the thing is, and I don't think people realize this, these instruments are insured, but oftentimes not insured for being left unattended in a motor vehicle. And I actually didn't know that it had that stipulation that, that you wouldn't get the money back in that uh, particular instance. But I learned it very soon after this happened. And uh, so it was just going to be lost if we didn't find it. Wow, what a life lesson. And I'm so glad you recovered it. How, that must have been such a, a relief when that happened. It was uh, no damage done to the violin. And I continued to play on it all throughout my years at Colburn and after. And now I own my own very special violin. It's a French 1845 um, Viome violin modeled after Guarneri violin. And it's really interesting. And I, I often wonder how would the maker Viome, how would he feel about the way that I'm using his instrument? And I think I like to think that he would be happy that something so old is still relevant today, but being used in a way that's relevant for society today. And so I like to think that he would be really interested to hear this music on this violin, but who knows? I'm sure he would. Um, is there anything uh, you're listening to right now that you're excited about that you, I always like to ask musicians, what are you, what are you listening to and into right now? So I spend uh, half the time in Los Angeles and half my time in New York. So I, I've spent a lot of time in traffic and I listen to music when I'm sitting in bumper to bumper traffic. And I always have my eyes and ears open for that song that becomes an earworm in my ear and for a song that I can't help but play on repeat, repeat, repeat. Because when that happens, I know that I have found our next take three song. And I work with a really good friend of mine on arranging this music for take three. And he's brilliant at being able to uh, realize the chord structure of a pop song and how that structure can relate to a classical piece of music. And so he gives me all these amazing ideas. Hey, what about if we take this part of Winter Vivaldi and we put it in this section? And every time you come to the chorus, we actually bring in the winter instead. And so in that way, I'm constantly looking out for the next hit that is going to be our next song. And we don't play any pop songs that don't have a twist. So mm -hmm. there's always got to be some kind of catch. It has that classical twist to it. Um, and with this show, we're coming with our, our percussion player. Uh, we actually have many percussion players throughout the U.S., but uh, we're so excited to be able to add that element because talk about you know, pop music has to have that great beat. And so thanks to you for, for having us bring our fourth for this show. So what's your latest earworm that, that you got stuck in your head right now? 
Well, actually, our, our what we're working on right now uh, is a uh, ACDC cover. And we act, and it is going to be with Vivaldi. There are a few different Vivaldi quotes that we have put in there. Um, and I'm maybe, I'm not going to say what it is because it might just open our show in Liverpool. <laughs> but if you okay. like ACDC, you're going to love, you're going to love this. Oh, that's awesome. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, well, I, I want to say thank you, Lindsay, for joining us. I, I do want to do one last thing, if that's okay. We'd like to do a game with everybody that we interview. Yes. Um, it's really easy. And we call it either or. And so this is just a way to get to know you better. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you a series of options and you just say which one you prefer. Okay. Right? So if I say... Is this a time test? It's not timed. <laughs> Don't worry. And... Uh, you're not going to get graded on this. Uh, there's there's no wrong answers. It's just a way to get to know you better. So if I was to say fruits or vegetables, what would you say? Both. I'm Both. sorry. I'm already <laughs> failing this test. You, yeah, the no, first one's wrong. Okay. Um, <laughs> a, uh, apple or PC? Oh, apple. Apple. Okay. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Right, we're going to get off the food here. Sunrise or sunset? I cannot choose that. Come on, man. You can't. Wow. No. Okay. Um, uh, I love them both so much. I mean, I literally try to catch both every day if I can. I, I'm a morning person and evening, so. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Los Angeles or New York? Uh, Los Angeles. All right. Uh, fall or spring? Spring. Uh, dogs or cats? Dogs. Beethoven or Mozart? Beethoven. Jazz or blues? Blues. You're flying through this. You're going to get the time test pretty quick here. Um, <laughs> major key or minor key? Major. Oh, you're you're the, one of the few people to say major. Yeah. Um, television or film? Television. By the way, uh, I also read that you, you've done a lot of soundtracks in uh, film and TV. And yeah. I'm watching the show right now on Netflix called The Witcher. And I believe that you've, that's a, it's hard for me. It's a confusing show. I'm trying really hard to follow it, but I do like the music. So thank you for, for helping with that. I couldn't make it through even five minutes. It was way too violent. And so even when I would see the screen as I was playing the soundtrack, uh, I had to really, it was too much for me because you cannot undo things you've seen. And I actually protect my mind from seeing certain things. So um, I had to basically close my eyes all during performing that soundtrack. And I could not watch the show. But that soundtrack was like number one on the Sony charts for many weeks. There's so, a lot of good music in that film. And, and yeah. that, that's a big part of the, or that show, that's a big part of the series is the music. So yeah. anyways, random, random thought there. Um, M&Ms or Reese's Pieces? Reese's Pieces. Yes. Uh, the Rolling Stones <laughs> or the Beatles? Beatles. Okay. Racquetball or violin? <laughs> violin. Violin by a mile. Okay. And then my last one is uh, Livermore at the Banquet Theater on January 19th or anywhere else in the world that night. Livermore. Yes. Yay. <laughs> I can't wait. You know, we met um, a few months before the Violins of Hope. And, you know, as musicians, we're always trying to 
you know, get the next gig. And I, I'm just so grateful to you guys for having Take Three. And, you know, it's going to be such a fun show. We cannot wait. You have such an amazing space there. And I know that we're going to have a really special evening there in January. Well, thank you. Uh, we really appreciate your time and we're looking forward to the show. Yeah, We're all super excited soon. about it. Yeah. Thank you well, guys. Have a good one. You're off one. the hook. Take care. <laughs> oh my God. Lindsay Deutsch is, she's just amazing. I'm like such, I'm such a stan as the, as the young kids say. <laughs> yeah, she was very cool. Um, I just love that she's, she's making the music that she does and, and making and performing it in a way that people can really connect with it. Yeah. And, and how she like, weaves in uh you know the, the classical um composer with the modern music you know, in a way that's so accessible and that seems to be her her goal to yeah, do i think it it's interesting because it's it's not just accessible to audience members but it's also something that she she really connects with connects with and it just comes out when she talks about it and i think we're going to see something very special um, on stage when take three will be here at the Bankhead, live at the Bankhead on Friday, January 19th at 8 p.m. People can get their tickets at livermorearts.org or by calling the box office at 925-373-6800. Come to the show. It's going to, it's really going to be a special one. Yes. And thank it's on you my list. Thank you for booking this one, Chris. <laughs> I think there's it. a lot of happy people about it. Uh, <laughs> I'm Ruth Eggerman. And I'm Chris Carter. Thanks for joining us.